want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 this morning. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves at Luke 16, verse 19. Luke 16, 19. And we'll finish the chapter this morning. Let me read the text. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. In the Gospels, it tells the story of Jesus talking to a rich young man. And after he has spoken to him and the the young man uh, kind of rejects the words that Jesus says to him, he goes away from him. Jesus turns to his disciples and said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the story? And when he said that, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew, it says that when Jesus uttered those words, his disciples were astonished. Over the years, I've known a few uh, rich people, very, very wealthy people. And I have to confess they're a different breed. Not that they're bad, but the influx of money has can have um, do funny things to you uh, if you're not careful. 
I was looking on the internet this week at stories of people who won the lottery. And a lot of them will date the day that their lives started to descend into absolute chaos on the day they won the lottery and all this money came into their possession. Hmm. Now in our passage, we have the story of a rich man and a poor man. It's told with specific directions looking at the Pharisees. Do you remember where we were last week? Jesus had instructed his disciples on how to be faithful in the use of money. And as he was talking to his disciples, the Pharisees were listening, if you notice in verse 14, and they were scoffing at him. You remember? They were scoffing at him because they did not believe what Jesus was saying to his disciples because they were lovers of money. That's the context. Jesus launches into them and really gives them a a few strong words in verses 14 through 18. And then he concludes his remarks concerning the issue of money by telling this parable. And the main theme is directed towards the the rich man and the Pharisees. That's the point. Now, a casual reading of this particular parable, this story, would give you the idea that a poor man suffered during his life, and so as a result, he is blessed with comfort in the afterlife. And a rich man, he had many good things during his life, and therefore, he suffers in the afterlife. The idea would be uh, poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's not what this is teaching. This is not what this is teaching. So I want to look at this parable because in this, Jesus speaks primarily to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, but there's also some really important applications for us because Jesus is talking about the danger, the danger of allowing money to have undue influence in your life. And the way I've structured our our time together, I want to look at some general implications first for everyone and then some specific implications for the rich man. Now, I've chosen the word implications for this reason. I looked up the, uh, the definition of implication and it means something suggested to be so without being expressly stated. Something suggested to be so without being expressly stated. So let's take a look at some general implications of this parable. First thing that we see is upon death, upon death there will be instantaneous judgment. Verses 22 and verses 23. There's a rich man called Lazarus. I mean, there's a poor man called Lazarus and there's a rich man, we don't know his name. They both die And Lazarus finds himself in Abraham's bosom immediately. The rich man, however, finds himself in Hades, in hell. Now, we're not talking about their bodies. They die and their bodies are put in the ground, but their immaterial nature, their spirit, their soul 
goes to these two places. And it's an immediate judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to, to die once, and after this, the judgment. Now, they don't stand before God, but they're instantly transported to a place that reflects the kind of life they lived. And that happens instantaneously. Now, the thinking from this particular parable, the thinking from this particular parable in most theologians goes something like this. Before Jesus died and was resurrected, there was a place for departed spirits, and it had two compartments. One was Abraham's bosom, and the other was a place of torment or hell. When Jesus died and resurrected, when he died and resurrected, he came into Sheol, the place of departed spirits, and he emptied Abraham's bosom because now the sacrifice had been made and all of those Old Testament saints were then transported into the presence of God. The other people in Hades were left there. Now, when in the New Testament era, when a person believes in Jesus Christ and receives him as his Lord and Savior, when he dies, or when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You immediately go into the presence of the Lord. If you die rejecting that which God has done for you in Jesus Christ and don't accept it, you go to Hades. You go to hell. And you stay there until the end times. And according to Revelation chapter 20, there's a great white throne judgment. And all of those in hell are resurrected, are resurrected, appear before God at the great white throne judgment. And since their names are not found written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. Now, most of us, being kind and warm people, would like to see a kinder, (laughs) gentler reality than what I have just said. And there's many people that would say, well, I've had this near-death experience, and, and even though I was a Christian, all of a sudden I was drawn to this light. and Just wonderful, fanciful stories, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches in spite of what we would like. Not everybody ends up in heaven with the Lord. Upon death, there will be instantaneous judgment based on what we did in this life. Second general implication, upon death, there will be either comfort or agony. Upon death, there will either be comfort or agony, verses 24 through 25. Now, we need to understand, this is a parable. It's a story, okay? So you see the finger and the tongue and the flames. How do you understand that? I mean, uh, some would say, well, these are expressions of the reality of the comfort or the reality of the agony. However, there are people who believe that there is a transitional body. 
If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, you'll see that it says that when we depart from this earthly tent, we go to a heavenly body. And we don't want to be what they call disembodied spirits just kind of floating around there, you know. Uh, and so some people would see a transitional body while we wait for the general resurrection at Jesus' second coming. Well, there's a lot of debate about that. We won't give you the final answer. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and see how that goes. But here in this passage, Lazarus finds himself in Abraham's bosom and he is comforted. But if we look at verse 25, the rich man dies and he is in agony. Now, some would object strongly that this, how can this be a reality for a God of love? This certainly can't be his will. Well, the Bible tells us he's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should go to hell. And when you have someone say that, I can't believe that a God of love would do that to many of his creatures, many of his creation, they really don't understand God. They don't understand God. Let me give you an illustration and tell you a truth. The truth is God is the source of everything that's good. Everything that's good comes from God. And so perhaps uh, this winter on these cold, blustery days, you pack up your family and off you go to Hawaii. And one morning you find yourself, the kids are building sandcastles by the beach, and you take your mate by the hand and you walk through the nice, warm, 75-degree water and the sun is beating on your face. And it's just, the sea breeze is blowing off the ocean. It's just an incredibly beautiful day. Maybe you're at Hanalei Bay in Kauai. It's just an incredible day. Everything good is happening in that place comes from God. Everything that's good is from God. So conversely, when you're out of the presence of God and you find yourself in a place where there is no good, the Bible calls that place hell because there is no presence of God. And if someone says all their lives, I want nothing to do with the God of the Bible, I want nothing to do with the Messiah that he sent to save me from my sins, when they die, when they die, as part of God's judgment, he sends them to a place where they have been saying all their lives, I want no part of this God. He sends them to a place that is expressive of that reality. And there is no good in the place that they end in. And the Bible calls that place absolute agony and hell. Upon death, there'll be either comfort or agony. Third implication, verses 24 and 26. Upon death, there'll be no way to alter one's circumstances. Upon death, there'll be no way to alter one's circumstance. The rich man seeks relief. Send Lazarus to give me some water. I'm in agony here, he says to Abraham. And Abraham's response was, well, I can't. There's a great chasm between there. And 
we can't go there to you. Now, why would anybody want to go to, from Abraham's bosom to, to, <laughs> to Hades? Well, perhaps they'd like to help a friend or a family member. Not possible. Nor can somebody who's in Hades go to Abraham's bosom. What's the meaning there? There's no second chance. You've made your decision. There's no works. There's no prayers. There's nothing you can do. You're there. You're either in Abraham's bosom or you're in hell. Now, some of our dear friends believe in a place called purgatory where you kind of, maybe by the prayers and the good works of people who are still on the earth, that you can somehow escape hell or purgatory. But that particular doctrine is not found in the inspired Holy Scriptures that we have in our laps. Even C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Great Divorce, has said that there's a place, a transitionary place, but I think that's a product of an over-imaginative over, uh, mind on the part of C.S. Lewis, because that's not taught in the Bible. Upon death, there'll be no way to alter one's circumstances. Finally, general implication, upon death, there will be some comprehension, there'll be some comprehension of spiritual realities. Look at verses 27 and 30. After his request is denied for water, the man turns to Abraham and he says, well, send Lazarus to appear to my father's house where my five brothers live so they won't come to my place that I find myself, this place of torment. He sees something. He sees reality about the truth of why he's there and how his brothers can escape coming to the place that he is. There's, there's a, a little bit of reality here. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. But that does not mean, does not mean that somehow after you die that uh, you can be saved and from, the, from hell. It just means you'll see the truth. But it'll be too late. Now, I was thinking of all the mistakes that I made before coming to Christ. How about you? Do you remember some of the stupid things you did? And I, we can call them stupid, right? Because they were stupid and foolish. And now that I look and I know the truth, I can see, wow... Looking at the Bible, I could see, yes, boy, I was so foolish to do the things that I did. But it's too late. I would like to go back, maybe in time, in a time machine, and kind of, you know, make it right. But I don't get a do-over. I don't get a (laughs) do-over. And I have to live with the consequences of the decisions I made and that even affect me even now, today, of things that I did 30 and 40 years ago. That's true for me. It's true for you. 
and it's true for the rich man. He sees the truth, but it's too late. He finally got to the station, but the train has already left. (laughs) There'll be some comprehension of spiritual realities, but there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. General implications from this passage. Now let's take a look at some specific implications for the rich man. First, notice in verses 19 through 21, the rich man used his money for self-centered pleasure. The rich man used his money for self-centered pleasure. It says he had fine linen, he dressed in the best of clothes, and lived joyously in splendor all the days of his life with no indication that he ever helped Lazarus who was sitting just outside his door. See, he had money and he used it on himself and his own pleasures. And it says that Lazarus was even at his gate and he would have been willing just to take the crumbs and the scraps that fell from the table, but there's no indication that that ever happened. No indication that that ever happened. You see, the money wasn't the problem, was it? And he, he couldn't, he couldn't, you couldn't use the excuse, well, he didn't know Lazarus. Oh, he... He recognized him right away. Did you notice? As soon as he was in Orman, he said, send Lazarus. He knew who Lazarus was. He saw him at his gate every day and ignored him and ignored the need in his life. And he was more interested in spending the money on his own self-centered pleasure than fulfilling the second greatest commandment, which was given by Jesus, was which was what? To love your neighbor as yourself. He ignored that commandment and he spent his money on himself rather than his neighbor. And there's the first reason why he finds himself in hell. Second implication, the rich man was deceived about his real spiritual condition. He was deceived about his real spiritual condition. Notice verse 24. He calls him Father Abraham. What does that mean? He was Jewish. He was depending on the fact that he was of the lineage and line of Abraham to somehow guarantee that he was what? In the kingdom. And like the Pharisees we talked about last week, they believed that their riches was a sign of what? God's approval and God's blessing of them. And so in that life, as he lived that life, spending his money on himself, he was deceived about his real spiritual condition. And he missed the first commandment, which was what? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In that is the whole of the Hebrew scriptures summed up. And so he finds himself in hell. 
Because rather than being a lover of God, he was a lover of money and self. He ignored the two greatest commandments. Summed up, summing up the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. Second Timothy speaks of such a person, such people. Let me read it to you. Second Timothy three two. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here it is, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then in verse 13, he kind of sums up again, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The rich man was deceived about his own spiritual condition. Third, Implication. The rich man never repented. The rich man never repented. In verses 27 through 31, we see after his request for water was turned down, he turned to Abraham and said, well, listen, send Lazarus so that my brothers will not make the same mistake that I did that landed me in hell. And what was that he that he didn't do? What he didn't do was repent. That's why he was in hell. He was a lover of money rather than a lover of God. He used his money on himself rather than his neighbor. And he never, listen carefully, he never repented from that. He never repented of it. And that's the reason he finds himself in hell. It has nothing to do with his money. He never repented from his sin of not loving God and not loving his neighbor as himself. Don't do what I did, he wants his brothers told. Because he never repented. The rich man never repented. The next implication... The rich man, even when judged, still maintains an attitude. The rich man, even when judged, still maintains an attitude. Did you notice that? Right away, he's ordering, hey, hey, send Lazarus over here. Give me some water. When that gets turned down, what does he say? Um, Send him to my brother's house, my father's house. Now, come on, quick, quick, get going. I don't want my brothers thrown into hell. And then when Abraham says, no, that won't work, he says, no, wait a minute, Abraham, listen, I know better than you. Moses and the prophets are not going to do any good. They need a man to raise from the dead. He's telling Father Abraham what he should do, and he's burning in hell. (laughs) No change of attitude. Filled with pride, not willing to give up his right. You see, he thinks he's still a rich man, and he can order people around. He hasn't changed. Now some folks say that when we die, 
our characters are frozen. So if you die as a Christian, you'll be a Christian for all eternity. You'll love God. (laughs) You'll love the things of God. You'll love heaven. You'll love singing praises. You'll love throwing your crown. You'll love everything that happens in heaven. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us when we die in Christ, we'll be like what? Jesus, sinless, eternal. And that will go on for eternity. We'll never slip back into our old ways. That'll never happen. We are fully Christian. We are glorified. Hmm. But that also could be true if you die without Christ. Your character is frozen. You'd hate heaven. You'd hate going to heaven. You'd hate the things of God and the Word of God and the things that happen in heaven. And that's kind of what we see in a little intimation here. Even though he finds himself in the reality of hell, he's still acting just as he did on earth. Finally, the rich man never saw the scriptures as authoritative. He never saw the scriptures as authoritative. Well, you're saying, well, what do you mean, Pastor Neil? Well, notice, perhaps as a rich man, while he was on earth, he went to synagogue or perhaps went to the temple occasionally. Perhaps as a rich man, he had a few scrolls deposited and displayed in a glass case where everybody could see them. But they had no meaning for him, did they? He had them, but he never listened to them. It's obvious he never read them. He never appropriated any of the truths that were in them. He never caught the gist of of what the Old Testament, what the Hebrew Scriptures were about, which was to love God with your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and love your neighbors. He didn't pay any attention to that stuff. Oh, come on, I know better than that. And now, in hell, it's the same thing. Father Abraham tells him, well, if they have Moses and the prophets, that's sufficient. And what does he say? No, 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 that's that's not going to do them any good. You see, because he never allowed the scriptures to have any effect on him. And as a result... He never allowed the scriptures to speak to him. He never repented. And that's the reason he finds himself in hell. How does a person get to hell? By ignoring the authoritative scriptures which speak of our own sin and our need to repent and turn to Christ. Now notice verse 31. Did you see that? Father Abraham responds to his request to send Lazarus. He says, well, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's interesting that he would say that, isn't it? Why is that? Well, just a little bit after this, Jesus did raise a man, another man, called Lazarus. Remember the story in John chapter 11? Raised him from the dead. And what happened with many of the leaders back then. They decided, okay, he did that. Now we really got to kill this guy. (laughs) He raised him from the dead. Did that change their mind? No. Or how about later when he himself, Jesus 
raised from the dead. What happened then? Well, the folks decided that they were going to persecute and kill the very disciples of Jesus who were going around telling them about the wonderful message of the resurrection from the dead. And so this scripture in verse 31 finds fulfillment in just a few short months after this. So some specific implications for the rich man and general implications for all of us. I came across a quote. Now, I don't usually read quotes, but this is a good one. It's from John Wesley. John Wesley was a great founder of the Methodist Church back in the 18th century. And I want to read the quote, but I just want to tell you a little bit. You've got to kind of understand where he's coming from. When he says in this quote, religion, he's talking about Christianity. Okay? So listen to this quote. It's on the solution to the problem of money. And I think it fits in here. John Wesley wrote, I fear whenever riches have increased, the essence of religion and the mind that was in Christ has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue for long. For religion must necessarily produce industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and the love of the world in all of its branches. What way then can we take our money and not sink into the nethermost hell? There's only one way, and there's no other way under heaven. If those who gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can, then the more they gain, the more they will grow in grace and the more treasure they will lay up in heaven for themselves. The words of John Wesley. Some good advice. Let me make application. Let's close. First thing, you need to evaluate your commitment to the Lord. You need to evaluate your commitment to the Lord. Because as we see in this parable, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about where that person was with the Lord. He wasn't a lover of God. He wasn't a lover of God. He rejected the words from the Holy Scriptures. And that's what found and brought him to the place of agony that he found himself in at the end of this chapter. It had nothing to do with the money. And so if we turn from the revelation that we find in the Scriptures and we don't accept we don't accept the provision that was made for our sin through Jesus Christ. We will die one day and we'll find ourselves in hell. So, we need to evaluate where we are with the Lord. Secondly, we need to evaluate the use of our money. We need to evaluate the use of our money. 
If you are a Christian and you have received Christ, let me ask you a question that only you can answer. Is your use of the money that God has given you reflective of your nature and your character as a Christian? Because you remember, he thought he was religious, but his actions showed that that was not true. And if indeed you are a Christian, then this parable enjoins us to allow that faith in Christ to be expressed in the use of our money. And only you and you only can answer that question. And I'll leave it there in your hands. Not the most happy clappy sermon. (laughs) But my friends, how comforting it is to know that if we have Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And we'll spend eternity with Him. And oftentimes I found myself that every once in a while I need a good kick in the pants. And it's good to remember, it's good to remember that if we have not Christ, we don't have Christ. And we die in that condition. We'll find ourselves separated from God for all eternity. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Well, I think it's time to worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words, this story about a rich man, how our heart breaks for what happened to him, and a poor man who found himself being comforted. Lord, whatever condition we find ourselves in this morning, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, may we be in Christ that we might find the comfort of God both in this life and in eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.